My name is Michael Burden from uh, the University of Oxford's Department of Music, um, and I'm here with um, David Kennelly, who's in history, and Susan Valadares, who's in English. Um, and we're beginning to discuss uh, our um, research project and exhibition called Staging History, which we've been uh, working on now for some years. Um, in fact, more years than probably all three of us care to remember. Um, uh, the the show opened um, yesterday. Um, the book has also been uh, launched yesterday, so it's very good to have those two things done. Um, the book's title, um, which is simply Staging History, uh, gives us a date range of 1780-1840. I mean, this very, very loosely, um, I suppose one could call it the Long Regency, as, as we talk about the long 18th century. Uh, but David, what um, with 1780, what sort of um, things are we looking at as a possible reason for us, for us focusing on that um, decade? Well, I suppose it's a time of um, immense change uh, in British society, in particular, rethinking of British uh, national identities in the wake of the um, disastrous war of American independence and the loss of the American colonies, having to rethink what Britain's place in the world is at that time, how it relates to its own history as well. So I think that's something to do with the uh, importance of the 1780s here. If you, ha if you had to sort of um, comment on that, I mean... Ha um what did people come up with? I mean, if they're trying to, if they're reinventing their, their, their I mean, the, the view of themselves doesn't sound as that was positive if they're responding to sort of the loss of colonies and the loss of a war. Um, I mean, are they looking for things to make themselves better, happier, um, whatever, or are they ground down by this? Well, I suppose it sort of depended who you were, but it did stimulate a lot of calls for reform or for rethinking of political and social structures, saying the existing system was not working, um, the aristocracy who were in charge weren't doing the job properly, um, there was uh, a cause for increased calls for parliamentary reform, and these only intensifies the French Revolution then appears later on in 1789, um, and um, democracy is <laughs> launching itself in, in other parts of the world. So there are... Um, I think a, a, a moment of self-examination, perhaps both positive and negative. I think uh, you know Britain emerges from it and emerges from the Napoleonic Wars with a renewed sense of self-confidence and self-definition as opposing Napoleonic tyranny. You know, being a bastion of, of liberty, but um, that's always a conflicted thing. It's whose liberties, how far is that liberty extended? Um, that is, is, is always a, a matter for debate. So. Mm. And I think it's really interesting to explore these ideas of nationhood and patriotism through the theatre because it's a forum which is open to men and women of all different social classes. And we know that it allows people who are perhaps illiterate to have access to these new ideas which are being circulating. Um, and to think about history as spectacle, as some form of entertainment, to recognize history in the making, um, and to have a say as well. Audiences voted for the performances which were on offer, so an actor would <laughs> yes, come out and yes. say... <laughs> no, I mean, can, I can I take you back to the business of, the, uh, of all classes uh, mm. going to the theatre um, and actually think about quanti qualifying that a, a bit sure. um, because the, it costs it costs to go to the theatre. Yeah, you still have to pay to um, to go to Drury Lane and Covent Garden and the minor theatres as well. The price range is still within reach, though. So um, the most expensive seats are the boxes, which mm -hmm. would be favoured by the aristocracy, and the royal family had a box as well. Um, and that would be um, five or six shillings, depending on the theatre. 
And uh, the pit was favored by the middle classes and the critics, that was the area closest to the stage, so you had a better idea of what's actually happening. These are really cavernous spaces, so yeah. mm-hmm. the closer you are to the stage, the better chance you have of hearing the action. Um, and that would be about three shillings and sixpence. And then the cheaper seats were in the galleries. So you had the upper gallery and the lower gallery. Mm. And there would be either two shillings or one shilling. So everybody, so everybody's possible, I mean, so, potentially can go. Yes, yeah. and especially once you introduce half price. Mm. So around nine o'clock, mm-hmm. the yeah. price would be slashed in half. Mm. And that meant that it was cheaper to see the afterpiece. Mm. And audiences are accustomed to an entire evening's worth of entertainment. So we don't just go to see one play in the 18th century. You go to see six hours um, of um, either a comedy, a tragedy, followed by an interlude of singing and dancing, and then an afterpiece, which can often comment in quite interesting ways on the main piece that Mm. has come before it. Yeah, David, can we just go back to the um, 1780? I mean, because how much fear do you think there was in uh, this, in the whole... um, sequence of events. I mean, you know, you lose American colonies. Um, George III doesn't come out looking particularly well out of it even, I mean, and, and ends up with a lot of blame. So the royal family is in, um, um, not exactly in everyone's black books, but I mean, their position isn't um, particularly good. Uh, and there must have been concern countrywide when the French Revolution came along. Uh, yes, I think, there was, I mean, it was, the French Revolution was met with um, in many instances, widespread rejoicing and seen as a fairly good thing, at least initially, uh, as a sort of French catching up with the British in terms of liberty, you know, and finally realising that absolutist monarchy was not the way forward. But mm. but it very quickly, obviously the French Revolution turns a little bit nasty, it's, it, it very quickly becomes something that's a greater cause for alarm, particularly once the execution of Louis XVI has happened. Mm. And, and then there is a, a, a greater reflection on what does monarchy mean, um, you know, what is the position of, of, of George III? He does quite a good job um, of, a sort of PR job, if you like, of rebranding himself as Farmer George with this domestic family who all, you know, get on very well. The only problem with that, of course, is the Prince of Wales, who doesn't really fit <laughs> uh, into the family's um, scheme um, mm. and um, mm. pursues a philandering, philandering and in self-indulgence in a very grand style, which I'm brings the whole family character. into a bit of... <laughs> it's very interesting you talk about them reinventing themselves through Farmer George, because that's not the only time that the royal family has, has reinvented themselves by putting the family sort of model... Um, uh, forward, which happens actually re- uh, repeatedly, so it's, a, it's almost like a sort of safety valve. Um, but mm. uh, George the uh, George the Fourth, I mean, well, at least for some of the time, the, um, the region, are we, we're not really clear, are we, on what George the Fourth had? I mean, you know, he's obviously known as the madness of George the Third, but there've been the the um, long held belief of what of, of what had. Um, uh, uh, what he'd inherited, in fact, is no longer true. Is that am I right in that? Oh, I don't know about the latest theories on um, the, the medical history, but uh, I, the theory I'm familiar with is, is his suffering from porphyria. Which that's is right. Well, that's the, yeah. that's the one that I just read was in, was in yeah. doubt. Unfortunately, I'm not sure that the the, the text I was reading suggested a, a viable alternative. So mm. But it, I mean, that was the cause for the regency, wasn't it? Yes, yes, and it had, of course, produced an earlier scare in 1788-29 with the first Regency crisis, but then the King, uh, George III, recovered from that, and uh, much to many people's relief. Um, uh, But yes, by by 1811, he enters into his final illness, um, uh, and 
and at which point the Prince Regent takes over um, and you, then subsequently becomes king in 1820 when George III dies. That's reflected in the theatre as well because King Lear um, is a play that the London theatres avoid during the Regency mm-hmm. period from 1811 to 1820 mm. because this representation of a mad king is mm. not suitable <laughs> for obvious reasons. Yeah. Yes, you besmirch the Prince Regent. Do you want to um, give us a little, uh, little picture um, of what's... Uh, uh, certainly, say that the, the, the public were relieved that when George III uh, returned and the first, what we might call the first regency was over. Why? Well, I, I mean, I, it, I suppose in a sense it depended who you were. Of course, if you were high up in the Whig party, you were actually hoping that the king would remain ill because uh, the Prince of Wales was a, um, at that time in, in the 17, uh, late 1780s was a key ally of the Whigs. So it was a lot of, there was a lot of political questions behind this as well. But um, uh, certainly uh, by the time you get to the um, Regency proper, the uh, the 1810s, um, the Prince of Wales is, is a not very well-liked figure, uh, largely um, through his um, enormous overindulgence in uh, eating and his enormous so, size as caricatured glutton, um, by Gilray and mm. so on. Um, but, but also um, other moments like uh, his relationship with his erstwhile queen, uh, Queen Caroline, um, who he later on went on to um, try and divorce uh, very mm-hmm. controversially. And then in 1820, she turned up at the coronation, coronation to bang on the door, door. of Westminster Abbey <laughs> famously. But, but this was, became a cause celebre for yeah. the radicals who mm-hmm. um, used it as a way of showing uh, George the, Joseph IV's uh, Disconnect from um, morality uh, uh, and from respectability, uh, and, and, and used it to hammer home the, the inadequacies of hereditary monarchy. Um, I mean, he was a wildly extravagant, wasn't he? I mm. mean, that was um, one of the other yeah, yeah. huge spending affairs. projects: Buckingham Palace, mm. the Brighton Pavilion, all these Carlton House, Carlton House, yes. House mm. all these lavish projects um, that he loved spending money on. So, uh, yes, <laughs> unpopular for that too, <laughs> at a time of at a time of uh, uh, economic crisis and. and to give him a little bit of good press, he was a patron of the arts, wasn't he? So, he was, yes. <laughs> well, I guess. I mean, well, yeah. the bad press doesn't, doesn't entirely wipe that out. I mean, he is he is he is interesting, certainly from the point of view of um, uh, of opera, because he was very keen on. Well, there seems to have been an attempt of him having a, a private theatre, or at least a, 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 a thing called the Prince of Wales Opera. He mm. seems to also have been involved in fiddling with the management of the of the King's Theatre, um, <laughs> and attempting. Um, in yet another moment of operatic crisis to uh, yeah, mastermind um, uh, the um, rapprochement of all the um, and uh, protagonists in, or perhaps antagonists, uh, <laughs> uh, protagonists in the um, uh, in the problems in the early teens. So, I mean, he was mm-hmm. really, um, uh, I think, uh, the extravagant, or the issue of the extravagance aside, there's no question that the things that he commissioned and the buildings that he built mm. um, were amazing. I mean, you know, mm. so I think there's it, it is difficult to sort out. I suppose the his taste from from the from the extravagance, which of course, mm. and I think mm. I think he clearly was a man of taste and mm. man of some style. And it made um, it so easy to caricature him because yeah, of yeah. some of the more flamboyant moments. Yeah, mm. yeah. So quite why, quite why he allowed himself to become quite so obese. <laughs> 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 
Mm. Well, he had a standing order with um, some of the caricature shops, didn't he, in terms yeah. of keeping track of all these different Did prints. <laughs> so mm. Rumor goes that, yes, he tried to um, hold on to some of the more vicious caricatures that were published. Oh, you mean buy out, buy out the whole yeah, run? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I, I didn't really that. That. <laughs> just wanting he was more interested in collecting in ones of his own image. It, but I, I think mean, also he is, because yeah. um, it's one way of potentially avoiding the scandals that can mm. come through this kind of medium. So. Mm. Well, there is that very famous caricature of him and Elizabeth Billington, who by that point herself was extremely embonpoint, um, mm. sitting on the sofa. With, and I mean, it's really quite grotesque. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> mm. yeah. yeah, several connections with theatrical figures as well, because, of course, there's a relationship mm. um, with uh, numerous actresses yes. <laughs> throughout his, throughout his career, <laughs> and his brothers as well. Absolutely, All the royal yeah. princes had some mm-hmm. actress to, with whom they were connected. Yeah, so leading could, actresses of the day as well, yeah. Dorothy mm. Jordan for his brother, so yeah. Yeah, yeah. very interesting. Well, but um, returning to his his taste, I mean, he was the one who owned the um, uh, manuscript of Clemens de Tito, and that was, and it was borrowed from him to put on the, the that was in fact the first Mozart opera stage in London in 1806. Mm. So he was, you know, he had interest in all sorts of, um, in all sorts of areas. Um, mm-hmm. the, uh, did he reform when he became king? <laughs> I don't think many people felt he did. <laughs> um, if anything, he became somewhat more fatter, fatter uh, certainly, and in a way more cantankerous. Certainly became very, whereas in his youth he had been more aligned with Whiggish causes of causes for reform by the 1820s is often seen as a block to reform, very um, decidedly preventing things like Catholic emancipation and stuff. He's very re- reluctant mm. to to sign up to those in a way that, ironically, his father had also been. So he, uh, in a way, ends up echoing <laughs> some of his some of his some of his father's uh, reign. And and by his death, the um, uh, public is longing for something new, new and new and different. And, th- and by that point, they're starting to look to the next generation. Obviously, there's a, uh, his, the reign of his brother, William, um, immediately. But then they're already aware that the next heir after we'll that is the young Princess Victoria. Mm. So, uh, And there's a hope that a female monarch um, who's been brought up in a different mm. style to the um, um, sons of George III will uh, bring a fresh wave of... Um, domesticity and virtue to the, to, the, to, the, to the monarchy, which indeed Victoria very much fulfills on. So. Yeah, well, without, with, and without brushing over William IV and Adelaide quite so um, uh, briskly, <laughs> I mean, yeah. he, the, the, uh, one of the problems, I mean, is, I mean, he's really rather dull, isn't he? I mean, nothing much seems to happen during the, during the 1830s. Um, this... Uh, well, in one sense. In one sense. Well, <laughs> yes, 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 sorry. Yes, yeah. okay. I would withdraw that. In terms of his his monarchy, but in terms of politics, it's an incredibly turbulent decade. Mm. I mean, the um, it, yeah, as I say, we, we already mentioned the um, repeal of the Test of Corporation Acts, which is, allows religious freedoms and political freedoms to um, non-Ancans, but also the Catholic Emancipation Act, which uh, finally again allows political rights for um, Catholics, particularly important for Ireland. Um, followed fairly shortly thereafter by the Great Reform Act to uh, mm-hmm. widen the franchise slightly. Um, so, and wasn't then that, so the Reform Act wasn't that great. Well, it depends <laughs> who you are, but yes, <laughs> yes exactly. It, it, um, it's not as extensive as, as a, an extension as might be implied by that. Mm-hmm. And of course the one theatrical thing that does happen is of course they set up the um, Committee of Drama I bet, yeah. um, the, uh, to investigate what's going on in the, in the Payton Theatres which doesn't deliver really until uh, some time afterwards um, but very interesting set un- up under Lord Lytton um, and 
Yeah, it's part of a wider process of, of, of reform, in a sense, that these um, new Whig governments are bringing in, in every area. They want to reform the government, they want to reform the uh, prison system, the factories, the the, um, the poor law, and the mm-hmm. theatre. And they mm-hmm. see it as a whole project of... of um, Improvement and progress. That's very much the order of the day. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a very, it's a very grandiose and whatever. But I mean, reading the report of the committee is basically a bunch of self-interested theatre <laughs> <laughs> managers busy defending the indefensible. Yeah. yeah. And they're put um, in difficult positions. So, how do you find a bralata, for instance? Yeah. Well, um, that's the, that's the famous passage in the, the, the web about, about how you find, which essentially means you can do anything as long as you've got to play in six songs. Really, it's a very, it's a very um, entertaining little bit. It's Coleman, <laughs> isn't it, giving evidence at that point? I mean, the the uh, fallout from that doesn't really hit London's late in 1943, which is just after the end of our um, mm-hmm. uh, our decade in the show. Um, does that, I mean, the, at that point, the um, uh, it allows a large number of other theatres to begin to be established, and therefore there's a bit there, it's a big change in the way um, uh, theatre works at that point. I mean, in particular, um, the thing that it does do is that it causes um, Drew Lane to stop being able to perform opera. It just there's no, mm. it's no longer um, possible to mm. perform it in the way that they were before, and it means that Covent Garden then takes over from both the King's Theatre and um, Drew Lane and becomes the opera house really that it still is today. It's a big piece of um, big piece of the picture, I think, that at the beginning of the 1840s.